0: This week, President Biden appeared on TV more than once and urged Americans to get vaccinated, to get their booster shots. Did you know that there once was a time when there was no resistance to vaccination, no partisan politics? Parents rushed to get their kids vaccinated against polio, and women and children lined up to get the rubella vaccine. This is not a fanciful story about a land far away or even a time further back than live in memory. Just ask your parents or grandparents, and they'll tell you how glad they were for vaccines. Hey there, news peelers. Today is December 3, 2021, and this is Adele, the host of the peel.news. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors, and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this "peel the History Behind News. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive, Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel Dot news is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. This week on Wednesday December 1st the first case of Omicron in the US was confirmed in California. The California patient had recently traveled from South Africa where the Omicron variant to COVID-19 was first identified by scientists. Despite President Biden's assurance that Omicron is a cause for concern and not a cause for panic This new COVID variant has rattled financial markets and is raising alarms among healthcare experts and government officials. And of course, it's all over the news media. In response, the CDC is now recommending that everyone 18 and older get a COVID booster shot. But just last month, its recommendation only applied to those 50 and above. The CDC and other healthcare experts and institutions can make all the recommendations they want about vaccines and boosters. But these recommendations won't go far when about one-third of the eligible population in the U.S. remains reluctant and unvaccinated. In fact, according to the Wall Street Journal, some healthcare workers would rather lose their jobs than get vaccinated. And just this week, a federal judge in the Western District of Louisiana blocked President Biden's vaccine mandate For healthcare workers. This particular judge, who was nominated by former President Trump, explained that Congress, not a government agency, should mandate the vaccination of more than 10 million US healthcare workers. And then he added that it is not clear that even an act of Congress mandating a vaccine would be constitutional. And of course, the pushback against basic vaccination is not a Louisiana phenomenon. It is all over the country, including New York City, which experienced major COVID outbreaks last year. Other countries, such as Austria and the French Caribbean territory of Guadeloupe, are also confronted with protests against vaccine mandates and lockdowns. We hear about anti-vaxxers and vaccine hesitancy in our news almost every day now. What we don't hear much about is, what would the world look like without vaccines? What would people living in the 1950s or the 1960s say about vaccines? What would President Franklin Roosevelt say about vaccines? In his case, the polio vaccine. To better understand the history of vaccines, such as measles and the polio vaccines, and the medical ethics that evolved along with vaccine developments, we spoke with Dr. Meredith Watman. She's a staff reporter at the journal Science and has written for Nature, Fortune, The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. As a medical student, Dr. Wadman staffed public health clinics in rural Ghana, worked on the pediatric ward in an overwhelmed, underfunded hospital for blacks in apartheid era South Africa, and traveled in longboats to work in public health clinics in the jungles of Borneo. Dr. Wadman is the author of The Vaccine Race Science, Politics, and the Human Costs of Defeating Disease. It is a fascinating and award-winning book, which she talks about in this episode, as well as a lot more about the history of vaccines. A link to her homepage is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Dr. Wadman and I peel the history behind this news.
1: This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.news podcast.
0: Uh, Dr. Wadman, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I want us to start by talking about your book, because it's so timely now. The title of the book is The Vaccine Race, Science, Politics, and the Human Costs of Defeating Disease. Obviously, the title gives a hint of this book's focus. Would you please share with our audience, though, in your own words, what's in the book? What is this book about?
2: Val, the book's about a vaccine race in a very different era almost 60 years ago when there was a big epidemic of rubella that was global and that landed on this country's shores in 1964. Rubella is also known as German measles. It's a less serious form of measles than the classical measles. So you might get a fever, you might feel a bit under the weather, kids might stay home from school a day or two, but it's nothing that's gonna shut you down and and be serious. However, if a pregnant woman, especially when early in her pregnancy becomes infected with rubella, it's devastating on the fetus. And so in this era in the early 1960s when there was no rubella vaccine, uh, tens of thousands of American infants were born blind, deaf, uh intellectually disabled, with heart defects, uh, or combinations of these problems. And it was wow. really a terrifying time to be a, a childbearing age woman or one trying to start a family in this country, because it spread like wildfire, um, not not as badly as classical measles, but it did spread readily. And there was no defending against it. I mean, public health authorities were advising women uh to stay away from young children. Well, you can imagine in an era of homemakers with lots of young kids around, how practical that advice was. Yeah, yeah. And so this launched this, in that era, epic race to get a rubella vaccine and get it approved because these epidemics came around about every five or six years. And so in 1964, the next uh, epidemic was expected in 1970, and the pressure was on to get that vaccine made. And it's a kind of a David and Goliath story about this lonely academic scientist named Stanley Plotkin who was working at this obscure Institute who was up against the likes of Merck and other big drug makers trying to beat them to the finish line in this race, but it's about a lot more.
1: Did
0: David win
2: in this uh, story? Am I, am I allowed to like spoil it? I don't want to. No, like- no, don't spoil it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Let's not spoil it.
0: Good point. <laughs> oh boy. I'm. Uh, well, I'm yeah. Yeah. You got me there. That was a good one. Go ahead, please.
2: Sure. Well, I I was going to say it's about a lot more. It's about the ethics of medical research. It's about a woman, a woman in early 1960s Sweden who was literally married to a drunken sailor who had several kids underfoot, who learned she was pregnant early in 1962 and couldn't face having another child, who sought out what was then a legal abortion in Sweden Mm-hmm. Um, but whose fetus was taken without her knowledge or consent. Its lungs were taken out and it was shipped to a very enterprising and ambitious young scientist named Len Hayflick, who worked at the Wistar Institute, a sort of hoary medical research institute on the University of Pennsylvania campus. And Hayflick was persuaded that making vaccines using fetal cells was going to be a much safer and more productive and more reliable way to make vaccines against viruses like rubella than the current monkey kidney cells that were being used to make the famous Salk polio vaccine for example. And so that's part of the story in the vaccine race too. The, was he correct? Uh yes, he, he was correct and believe it or not the Merck rubella vaccine that is made to this day, uh, just outside Philadelphia at Merck's big campus, northwest of the city, uh, is made using cells from that same fetus aborted in Sweden in 1962.
0: Wow. Oh, wow. Um, now, you said that this woman's uh, baby, a fetus aborted baby, uh, was taken without her permission. Was that sort of thing common in those days?
2: Oh, it was so common, Adele. It's it horrendous. It would, have, it would have been like startling to a very kind of entitled medical research complex uh, and the people who inhabited it to even think about asking for permission. Um, it was, you know, to their minds, leftover tissue that they had a perfectly good claim to. And and this was an approach to ethics or lack thereof that was endorsed not just by, you know, a scientist who happened to be in Sweden dissecting these lungs for Len Hayflick, but by major medical journals, by government funders of research, uh, by major universities. It was just how things were done. And it wasn't until 1966 when a famous article challenging this practice was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, that there was kind of a call and a quick turnabout in the medical research world. And they began to institute ethics committees that had to approve human studies before they went forward. And they began to require informed consent from patients for participation in such studies and for, in some cases, the use of their tissues, although that took a lot longer.
0: Thank God for that. We've come a long way.
2: Yeah, it's a very different era now.
0: How long did this race to uh, to develop uh, the uh, rubella vaccine take?
2: It was, by the standards of the day, quite quick. It was launched in 1964, and three vaccines were approved by the NIH in those days, and not the FDA-approved vaccines. So three vaccines were approved by the F, uh, by the NIH in 1969. So that was light speed in that era, and in really in every era until March of 2020. I mean, yeah. it's just incredible what's happened with the COVID vaccine, and in terms of the speed with which it's been developed, or with with which they have been developed.
0: Speaking of March of 2020. I note that your book published in February, 2017, three years before the COVID vaccine debate began to dominate our news. Uh, What aspects of your book are applicable to our current circumstances?
2: Oh, I think a lot. Um, You know, the politics of the rubella vaccine race was really consequential. The way that there was politics involved in that oh, well, amazing, yes. <laughs> um, you know, so Len Hayflick, this young up and coming scientist at the Wistar Institute, who fully believed in these fetal cells as a better way to make viral vaccines and who was proven right in the long term. Um, he was looked on, his cells, I should say, were looked on with suspicion and resisted heavily by the NIH and by, in particular, the kind of vaccine czar for the country at that time who helped was the gatekeeper of all US vaccine approvals, a guy named Rod Murray at NIH. And he just wasn't having it. He was not going to approve any vaccine developed in these human cells. And at the same time, Hayflick's colleague, Stanley Plotkin, another young up and coming Wistar Institute scientist, used Hayflick cells to go about developing a rubella vaccine. And that vaccine turned out to be superior to the company vaccines, but did it get approved in 1969? Oh, no, no, no. Because it was made in Hayflick's human fetal cells and it was just not going to happen.
0: Interesting. Um, Yeah. A lot of politics, internal politics. And I'm wondering if these sort of, uh, politics in NIH and in universities, was it also reflected in the major news media coverage? Yes. Or it was.
2: Yes. Yeah. The the, the the big companies would get play. Um, Plotkin with the superior rubella vaccine would be ignored when he turned up at a conference or made a presentation. Um Bad news about vaccines would sometimes get buried in the back of the book, including the New York Times. So, yeah, th- that was a reality.
0: Um, you alluded to some, but I'm wondering in your book, do you expose any cover ups or any controversies in that time?
2: Oh, yeah. The book is a lot about um, the use of captive populations, I'll call them often. Captive infant- p- populations? Well, in other words, kids in orphanages, uh, prisoners, intellectually disabled kids that are, you know, kind of put away in these institutions in, in those days for life. The, the scientists would cruise in to these places and, you know, quote unquote, borrow those kids for vaccine effectiveness experiments.
0: Oh, come on. These are.
2: Wow yeah no this was common practice and in fact i feel so
0: naive it? i'm not knowing this
2: oh there's a huge history you know people are um, sometimes aware of the tuskegee experiment yeah. the 99 black men were left untreated for syphilis for years and years when there was effective treatment available just a horrible horrible scandal it's well known at least in certain circles but much else went on that was akin and on a par. For instance, the, the Philadelphia General Hospital, which was the major go-to hospital for uh, African-Americans in that city. They trusted the doctors there. They felt welcomed there. They weren't looked down on. Well, Hilary Kaprowski, who ran the Wistar Institute, saw absolutely no issue with going over to test a, an experimental polio vaccine on uh, newborn infants, almost all of them black, in that hospital's nursery. No no oh,
0: consent right. required?
2: Oh, no, no. And, oh, uh, you know, wow. the nurse who ran the nursery was not at all pleased. She had been instructed by her boss, who was part of the establishment, to let it happen. But, boy, she just looked daggers at the young man who came along to administer the vaccines and to draw those infants.
0: Good for together. her.
2: Some of them premature infants weighing as little as two pounds. So, you know, these things are not known. But oh, I what I wanted to, to finish with is that the the MMR vaccine that's famous and that's given to all American infants and get and another dose is given to kids just before they enter school, and is given the world over, by the way. Um, the R component is the rubella vaccine. And okay, I will spoil this. Stan Plotkin did ultimately triumph, the David in the David and Goliath battle, through intervention from colleagues who just banged on the door at Merck and said, this vaccine is better. Why don't you start making Plotkin's vaccine instead of the cruddy one you're making? And so lo and behold, in 1979, it was approved and it is the R and the MMR vaccine. But who was the first human being to receive the experimental Plotkin vaccine? It was, uh, well, th- there were several. They were a group of one and two-year-old orphans at a orphanage run by the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, the Catholic Archdiocese. With The, the orphans,
0: again, I assume no consent from anyone here.
2: No, just the Archbishop, who just thought it was quite fine.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. Um, Dr. Wadman, why don't we take a short break here and then talk about some of the remarkable personal experiences you've had during the early years of your medical training. Dr. Wadman, as a medical student, you worked at public health clinics in rural Ghana and and did your pediatric rotation in apartheid era, South Africa. So you have a perspective on healthcare that we in America, the land of the plenty, the land of, I need this, I need this, give me this, and we expect it to happen, simply don't have, right? Um, First, what was healthcare like in those countries at that time, in comparison to, say, the US and Canada?
2: There really was no comparison. Oftentimes, it was marked by its absence. I mean, the clinic that I worked in in rural Ghana, people would come from miles and miles around, and there wouldn't be full supplies of anything that you might need. And it was just very, very rudimentary healthcare. And Borneo. I was with public health nurses going on long boats up the rivers to you know try to reach tribes and longhouses deep, deep in the jungle, and there was just there was no nothing of what we would call healthcare infrastructure there, short of an occasional visit from a public health team, and so it was it was terrible. And then in South Africa, in Durban. Um, at the major hospital for non-white South Africans in the whole province of KwaZulu-Natal. It was a huge, sprawling hospital with thousands of thousands of, of patients who came from an area the size of North Carolina to get there. And and by the time...
0: Wow, they, they got, traveled that far to get yeah. there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, wow. I, I mean,
2: they... And a lot of times by the time they got there, particularly the kids, they were moribund. They were, it was, if it was not too late, it was close to too late. And they were suffering from vaccine preventable diseases, these kids. Um, Measles was a particular killer.
0: But Um, South Africa, you know, in comparison to Ghana or Borneo, was more advanced, more affluent as a nation.
2: It was, and this was in a major urban center, but that didn't mean that. You know, going to the King Edward VIII Hospital now, now renamed happily the Nelson Mandela uh, Medical School and Hospital, um, that didn't guarantee you a level of of, of healthcare. I mean, they, they had like babies crammed four to an incubator in the in the nursery because there just wasn't wow. room. Or a kid with pneumonia, um, where in the White Hospital across town, if it got bad, they could be treated on a ventilator. the the kids were dying under these oxygen tents that were just not useful at all um, because bacteria had invaded their lungs uh, on top of measles virus, which could have been prevented with a 29 cent vaccine. Um, So it it was just, it was just tragic. What is this the early 1980s? This was 1986. 1986.
0: Yeah. Yeah. and no basic vaccines?
2: not in the hinterlands, not not in a broad and systematic way, and that's I've got to say that's the case still in much of the global South, particularly in remote areas. Um, it's uh, you know it's a tragedy, it's a preventable tragedy that we have.
0: It is uh, a tragedy, which sort of helps me, I guess, put some things in perspective and and triggers this question. If you recall in the 2000s, American pediatricians, well, I shouldn't say just 2000s, it's really continued till now, faced this nasty uh, onslaught of anti-vaxxers. This was thanks uh, in part to the likes of uh, celebrities such as Jenny McCarthy, who were dishing out on scientific advice uh, of don't get your kids vaccinated. Do you know if the countries you worked at as a medical student and you were doing your rotations and visiting engaged in the same sort of debates and conspiracy theories about pediatric vaccines?
2: I do not think to the level that that now happens in all areas of the world, uh, promoted and really amplified excessively by social media. You know, this was a pre-social media time. Um there was, to a degree, in some areas, distrust of white, always, medical authorities. and that in some places came from really legitimate experiences, such of as sort of medical colonialism, of, you know, people being used as to put it really bluntly, guinea pigs and say, large polio trials uh, in the Congo and and, and so on. Um, Stan Plotkin, who was involved in one of those, talked about, you know, really nearly getting attacked by a mob there who believed that the vaccinations were going to make all their kids infertile. So, you know, and this was in the late 1950s. So definitely that kind of distrust sometimes or often justified of white authorities has um, has. Been there, but not at the level it is now. And by the way, it's not helped by instances like the CIA when they're trying to track down Bin Laden in Afghanistan, uh, rather in Pakistan. Um, you know, using an agent posing as a vaccinator to try to oh, ascertain yeah. if he was indeed inside that Abbottabad compound. And you know, since then, and. To a degree, understandably, vaccinators on campaigns to try to wipe out polio in Afghanistan and Pakistan have been attacked and sometimes killed. And, and one can see where that might come from.
0: So um, from what you're telling me, uh, seems like we can draw a distinction between uh, the reluctance uh, or adversity of some of the countries you, you, you named due to sort of... Uh, colonial or other country issues with their own uh uh, people as far as uh, being guinea pigs or you know white medical tests and uh, cia operations but that's different than what was happening in the us uh in the 2000s and now sort of
2: yes it uh, is. i guess
0: sort of middle class parents uh, getting online reading about what's good and what's not good and making their own decision about vaccination. So that, that's a different, that's, that's distinct from what you're describing, right?
2: Right. And, you know, historically it's worth noting that there's been anti-vaccine sentiment in this country since, you know, the era of John Adams and and smallpox vaccination, there's always been an element of that, but I have never, and I don't think historically it has ever been present at the level that we're seeing it with COVID vaccination. I mean, we've got 50 million eligible and unvaccinated Americans, which just boggles the mind. How do
0: you think those countries are reacting to the COVID vaccine now? Are they happy to receive them or are they sort of engaging in the same political skirmishes that we are uh, suffering from?
2: Yeah, it first needs to be said that here's two kind of shocking statistics. One is Globally, 48% of people have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. That's as of today, according to our world and data. So could you repeat
0: that percentage, please?
2: Yeah, sure. 48% of people globally mm-hmm. have received at one, le- at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. But in low income countries, only 3% have received at least one dose. In Africa, you've got less than 5%. Africans who are fully vaccinated. So that's the context in which we're discussing vaccine hesitancy, say, in Africa. And so it needs to be said that supply is a much bigger problem than hesitancy at this point. And it's, you know, in my view, going to go down as one of the most catastrophic ethical failures of our era that that the first world has essentially hogged all the COVID vaccine. and, And it's just not supportable. Um, Anyway, but given that, it's still true that vaccine misinformation is also a concern in these countries. Um, In one survey last December and January, 60% of people in five West African countries said they were unlikely to get vaccinated because they didn't trust their governments to ensure that the vaccine would be safe. Uh, In July, the same was said by 7 in 10 South Africans. Now, the time hasn't come for a lot of these countries. They just haven't had access to the vaccine. Whether that will bear out in practice, um, well, I certainly hope it doesn't. But they like distrust the our
0: government to 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 provide vaccines, even if these vaccines come from Europe or North America. Is that yeah, yeah,
2: yeah? I mean, in re- in the South African survey, half, nearly half of respondents said that prayer would be more effective against COVID infection than taking Pear? a vaccine. Prayer. Prayer. Oh, prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh
0: my goodness. Yeah. So not- and this
2: is just it's a reflection um, of the social media environment. Uh, there's a lot of foreign actors importing misinformation into social media networks in uh, in Africa. Uh, there's also, you know, homegrown dissent and disinformation. So it's it's definitely got a foothold there. So- to what extent isn't really obvious until they have plenty of access to vaccine.
0: Um is, is that amongst the people or is it also creating political partisanship like it is in America?
2: That I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, it's unfortunate anyway. I hope they get uh, plenty of vaccines and, and and sort of they put away the debate and vaccinate themselves. We'll be back after a short break to talk about rocket science and vaccines.
1: We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you.
0: Dr. Wadman, in the past, you've said that vaccine making isn't rocket science. It's a lot harder than rocket science. Why do you think uh, making vaccines is so hard? Certainly harder than rocket science, right?
2: Yes. Well, Adele, I've got to give credit where credit is due. That statement was actually made, and then I used it as an epigraph in one of the chapters of my book. It was actually made by vaccinologist Alan Schmaljohn of the University of Maryland in an NPR interview shortly after an Ebola vaccine that he had been working on was killed by the Department of Defense that they pulled its funding. Um, and, And what he said he was getting at that was that rocket science involves noble quantities. It involves math, chemistry, physics, which really have predictable, measurable reactions. You can know to a degree and expect to a degree that A will lead to B will lead to C. Making vaccines, on the other hand, involves biology, which means living systems, which means far more inherent unpredictability and deeply complicated interactions uh, that really do make rocket science look easy. It's just (laughs) that difficult. And, you know, you can see this in the fact that just for instance, we've been chasing an AIDS vaccine for nearly 40 years. That virus continues to elude us. Um, you know, a new va- a malaria vaccine was a first, uh, was just uh, approved in sub-Saharan yeah. Africa. Yeah. But it's not great. It, it's, it's not going to solve the problem. It's, you know, better than nothing, I think, is a fair assessment.
0: You mean its efficacy is limited? Is that why you say it's not great?
2: Yeah, its, it's efficacy is not huge. Okay. It's going to save some kids' lives. There's no doubt of that. But it's not like, you know, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines when they first came out with their efficacy against COVID in the 90s, 90%. Um, And you also should be aware that for every wonderful example we have of a vaccine that sped through the COVID process quickly, like Moderna, like uh, J&J, like Pfizer, there have been others that have struggled and that have fallen by the wayside. I mean, if you go to the World Health Organization table of vaccines being developed against COVID, it's hundreds and hundreds of, of items long. Um, I could give you just one example of a company near at hand that has struggled uh, Novavax, the small Maryland biotech company that got $1.6 with a B dollars from the US wow. government to speed. Wow. A protein-based COVID vaccine to market, and they just they just can't get through the FDA hurdles in their manufacturing process to win that important emergency use authorization. the The vaccine, um, rather, the vaccine performed beautifully in a very large clinical trial here in North America and also in Britain. Um, but it's one thing to have enough vaccine to run a trial in 30,000 people, it's another to make millions and millions and billions, which is what Novavax has promised, of doses that are consistent, where you can go and open a vial and you're going to have substantially the same product that you have across batches um, here and no matter where else they're manufactured. And that is pure, that is up to the standards that FDA requires, which are high- for being a safe thing to put in a human body. And that's another thing with vaccines that really is also worth noting. You you asked at some point or you may ask at some point about, you know, what about why is it harder than a heart valve or a diabetes medication? Yeah. Go ahead,
0: please. Yes.
2: One of the reasons is when you're giving putting in a heart valve or giving a diabetes medication, you're giving it to someone who's sick, who needs and who is going to suffer without receiving it you're not giving it to a healthy person which is the lion's share of people who are vaccinated for instance against covid and so it's a different risk benefit equation it's different to put something in a perfectly healthy human being maybe a 19 year old or a 34 year old or a you know even older but the point is That's different than an ailing six-year-old who needs a heart valve replacement. And so you've got to have an even higher standard for safety and for efficacy in a vaccine than you do in drugs. We're willing to put up with more risk because people that get drugs and devices are sicker.
0: I think you encapsulated it beautifully by saying one of the big differences here is the risk risk benefit ratio in that if a person is well, well, don't fix it if it ain't broke, right? If the person is healthy, why are you sticking things in me? Versus, uh, God forbid, if someone is in their 70s and they're dying from cancer or you're struggling with it or whatever it is, they need to do something. They must do something. And so the risk-benefit uh, ratio is just much different.
2: Right. And, and let me push back a little and say it's not um, I'm perfectly healthy why are you sticking it in w- in me because we know why we are because it's going to protect you from getting this or that or the other possibly life-threatening disease it's mm-hmm. just that we have to be sure that the risks outweigh the benefits let me give you an example the tetanus vaccine um, which is a common you know it's, it's a routine childhood vaccine and then we yeah. also get tetanus boosters every 10 years or so um, in very rare instances, I think it's 0.000-something 0. 000 percent, you can develop a life-threatening anaphylactic reaction, a, a serious allergic reaction that can and does kill people. Uh, oh, it's wow. a fraction of a percent, like 0. 0.0006, I think it is, percent of people who receive a tetanus vaccine. But if you get tetanus, your chance of dying is around 13%. So do the math. You know, we balance risks and benefits.
0: You do. That's right. Um, in what aspect or aspects uh, was the development of the COVID vaccine unprecedented? Um, I know we know the speed. You know, you were talking about rubella 1964 to 1969. That's the length of its development, um, five years. And that was considered light speed, I guess, those years. Um, So what makes the development of the COVID vaccine unprecedented?
2: Well, it was, sorry, let me say this. It's slightly inaccurate to say that it's unprecedented. We developed a swine flu vaccine very, very quickly in 2009. And I think that gets overlooked, but that's a quibble. Yes. That's actually an important point. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. But that being as it may, um, these COVID vaccines were developed exceptionally quickly. Now, there's a bit of a, an illusion with the mRNA vaccines. It's not as if, you know, on February 28th or whatever day, the first US COVID, uh, COVID case was diagnosed, um, you know, vaccine makers said, hmm, maybe we should use mRNA to develop a vaccine. I wonder if that would work. They had been working with mRNA to try, I mean, the the history of the development of mRNA vaccine that predated the sort of very quick COVID development of an mRNA vaccine goes back decades. It goes back to the 90s that people have been trying to deploy mRNA therapeutically and understand how to get it into the body without it being destroyed uh, before it can do any good. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of an illusion to say, oh yeah, they just did this start to finish in eight months. No, there was a lot of work and people whose work before they were standing on the shoulders of. So nonetheless, it really was remarkable speed and you know there's a lot i disagree with donald trump on but i think it was just the right thing to do to pump these billions of dollars to spread the risk into these vaccine makers to You're help them to,
0: the Warp to speed do this program
2: yeah to help them to do it very very quickly that was the right thing to do
0: yeah um how about the efficacy are you happy with that
2: yes i mean Vaccines are keeping people out of hospitals and out of morgues. Yes, there are breakthrough infections in some vaccinated individuals, and just by the sheer numbers of people we've vaccinated, that's going to happen. It, it really depends what your endpoint is. If you expect vaccines to completely prevent infection, you are going to be disappointed. There, there are virtually that
0: never happens.
2: That. Yeah, no, no. They, they, they can shut down infection very quickly. They can prevent the infection from taking off in your body. But by and large, they don't completely prevent infection. And so what we're trying to prevent is severe illness and death. And by that measure, they are succeeding, I would say, you know, beyond our wildest dreams with COVID.
0: Wonderful. Um, On that point, how do you think the efficacy of the COVID vaccine compares to all the other vaccines out there? Is it on par? Is it higher?
2: Oh, vaccines, you know, they're like people, they're very individual. And so you do not have a super high efficacy rate with all vaccines. Uh, Measles is very, very effective. It's at like 95%. It's kind of the the star vaccine in that way, in terms of
0: the measles. Hmm.
2: Yeah, which is why we don't see measles unless people refuse to get vaccinated, because it's so, so effective and its immunity lasts lifelong. Whereas it's clearly not the case with, with the COVID-19 vaccines, and we're going to need some boosters in all likelihood. Um, but other vaccines are less effective down in the 80% range, some of them. I mean, the flu vaccine can fall as low as 50%, 40% efficacy, depending on the year. And so, no, the, the COVID vaccines are extremely effective, particularly the mRNA vaccine. Was there,
0: was there efficacy rate?
2: Um, when against the vanilla kind of Wuhan strain mm-hmm. of the COVID nineteen virus, they were at I think ninety four and ninety five percent respectively, Moderna and Pfizer, or maybe the other way around, uh, Pfizer and Moderna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mid nineties, very high, very that's high.
0: That's impressive.
2: Now that's eroded. In, in the face of bari- of some of the variants, but it's still, I think, upper 80s for some. The J&J vaccine, less so. I think it was down in the high 60s. So, you know, a- 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 and some of the other vaccines in use in other countries are, are also less effective. But um, we've just been extraordinarily fortunate to, to have we access have been. to these really outstanding vaccines.
0: We have been. Why well, don't we take a short break here? Stay with me and Dr. Rodman as we get into the perspective. (music) Dr. Lodman, how have vaccines impacted American society? Yes, yes, they've saved lives. But beyond that, is it I guess, is it fair to say that vaccines have given us certain freedom from fear, perhaps so much freedom that we've forgotten what life was like without vaccines? We had a president who had polio and couldn't walk.
2: Yeah, I think you really have to go to people who are now at least in their 60s or their 70s or their 80s to ask what it was like you know to have living memory of what it was like because it was really a fearful time and particularly around polio you know parents were like terrified to send their kids to the swimming pool in the summer because it's a virus you get you know from by ingesting the virus which you know what happens in public pools in summer and there was just you know a terror of the disease. And, and yes, FDR's situation sort of put a very prominent human face on, on what the outcomes could be. So it was a totally different mindset that the arrival, for instance, in 1955 of the sulk polio vaccine, which was the first polio vaccine approved in this country, which was the great public health victory of the day. I mean, parents were rushing their kids to schools to line them up to get them vaccinated in their tens of millions. And oh, wow. it was like, welcomed with open arms. So, so yes, no,
0: no po- polarized politics there?
2: No, no, nothing, nothing compared to what we're seeing today.
0: Do you think um, America would have reacted differently to the COVID vaccine if um, if uh, COVID came 50, 60 years ago? Uh, it was a time that, I don't know, um, we were probably more thankful to the miracles of science than we are now, we're so used to it. I guess back then um, we were, I guess, more, uh, and I'm speculating here, but, uh, I think back then probably we were more proximate to the harsh realities of high infant and children mortalities than, than, than we are now.
2: Absolutely. And I do think without question, there would have been a different reaction 50 or 60 years ago. Now it needs to be said, we also would not have had anything close to mRNA vaccines 50 or 60 years ago. We would have been, you know, growing the virus in in culture and killing it with formaldehyde and injecting it as a whole killed virus like the Salk virus was or perhaps as a a weakened um, living virus that wasn't living enough to or wasn't strong enough to cause serious illness although with COVID that would have been a dicey proposition. The bottom line is our technologies would not have been near as good but had they been quickly used to develop a vaccine, you can bet people would have been rolling up their sleeves. And a lot of that has to do with the position of medical authority uh, and the public attitudes toward it. Um, there was a lot more trust in the medical establishment in that era as well. A lot more willingness to sort of do what you're told. Um, Why and Why is
0: that? I've noticed that. Why has that changed You think in the last 60 years or so?
2: Well, I think the internet has made a massive difference because people can educate themselves now whether they find you know authoritative sources or you know misinformation is a whole nother question but you can learn a lot and educate yourself in a way that you know was just off limits to 95 percent of people back in the day and you can do it quickly so you know you can know about your what you think your diagnosis is before you go into the uh, dermatologist's office or the you know cancer doctor's office and and you can know a lot and so that knowledge is no longer the province of an esoteric elite and i think that that uh really informs people's willingness at least in a certain stratum of society to push back and to not always assume that doctor knows best
0: that's true maybe we're just not as awestruck as we used to be let's say 40 50 years ago walking into a doctor's office because we've sort of have a preconceived notion of what uh, our situation may be and what remedies there are for it. If you wanted uh, our audience to remember just one point about vaccines, what would it be?
2: Three words. They save lives. There's just no way to even estimate the number of lives saved, but it's doubtless in the hundreds of millions, probably in the billions uh, of By vaccines in, from about the midpoint of the 20th century, um, arguably the most important advance in terms of life saving, possibly with the exception of, of clean water, uh, that there has been, uh, in, in, you know, recent memory. And so I just would plead with people who are hesitant or resistant about getting a COVID-19 vaccine, to talk to their doctors, who we've just said they may not trust, to talk to someone they do trust, their pastor, their rabbi, their go-to person who they trust and and try to get a different view or at least listen to a different view on the safety and and the importance of getting vaccinated, not just for themselves, but for their neighbors. And their family and the people around them
0: maybe you answered this question earlier in our podcast i i want to ask it again if that's the case was there any uh, resistance from the public to the rubella vaccine
2: no no i mean women were lining up <laughs> the and and kids i mean actually it was first authorized for kids i i misspoke there but you know there was a Really memorable cover of Life magazine in June 1965, you know, as these tens of thousands of damaged babies were being born, you know, showing a woman with a tourniquet around her arm, holding her arm out to have blood drawn to discover if she actually has been infected with rubella while pregnant. And that just captures it for me is that there was a total fear and demand for a vaccine that would allow women of childbearing age to live their lives with a peace of mind saying my, my infant is not gonna be damaged because the rubella virus infected me during my pregnancy and I didn't even know it.
0: Dr. Rodman, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the peel.news anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, Please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.news, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. in getting you to think about the history behind news and of course share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our instagram page at the peel.news i love to hear from you i love to learn from you until next time this is adele with appeal.news